If you would like to buy your own copy of The Godfather Part 1 or Part 2, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35 followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. John Lewis is a University Distinguished Professor of Film Studies and University Honours College Eminent Professor at Oregon State University. He has published 13 books, including The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2, for our British Film Institute's Film Classics series. In Part 2 of this episode, we will be exploring what the relationship between Hollywood and crime was like before and after this movie, as well as how the film got its reputation as high art in the Western canon. Then we'll talk about New Hollywood, the power of the director, the idea of the author, and what the future for medium-sized indie films could look like. Take a listen. As we were talking, I think the reason why they may still resonate is because they were conceived of at a time that was both really cynical and really critical of the political moment. And I think that that's exactly where we're at now. I think plenty of people, Uh no, I mean, I think plenty of people my age are deeply cynical about the state of politics and think that the whole country is run by crooks in the same way. And I think at the same time, there's also like so many different critiques of where Me Too has went and just like renewed critical feminist discourse in a way that, you know, these things are so cyclical that it is just really interesting to see parallels between how this was conceived and how we can still find resonance today. But you started talking about this already, the kind of unusual, shall we say, production history of the movie. And I had no idea that your dad was a teamster. So maybe this comes in here in some way, but in the book, you uncover a series of real gangster backstories and, you know, maybe that millions of dollars of mob money may have well funded this movie in the first place. So what influence, if any, did the mafia actually have over the production of the film? And um, did your own kind of family relation shape, you know, on a meta level, did your family relationship kind of like change how you understand that history? Well, the last part, no, I don't think so. But I'll go on the record uh, saying that the Teamsters did right by my father. My father worked for an appliance company and he um, was the foreman of a warehouse. So he at first wasn't himself a Teamster, but supervised a crew of Teamsters. And he did that for like 20 years. And then the company folded because the, I guess this does have to do with Godfather. The two brothers, one of the brothers just pulled his money out of the business one night and moved to Florida and like disappeared. And the company folded. And my father ended up hired by the state of New York to sort of settle matters because they had all this stuff in the warehouse that they had to sell in order to pay creditors. And then he was like, he was in his 50s and now looking at being unemployed. And the Teamsters for whom he supervised, you know, he supervised Teamsters, they came in and said, you know, you've done right by our crew, we're going to hire you to work for us. Which is a great story, I think, because it speaks to this idea that these are the values that are very appealing in Godfather. It's loyalty, you know, it's you do right and good things will happen. And the only time you'll be in trouble with us is if your business conflicts with mine, as Vito says, you know, so. And they hired him as it turned out to be a terrible job in a way because he became the guy who would show up on a site and check the books to see if you were 
properly putting money into the Teamster account. You were deducting from paychecks and putting it where you were supposed to. Why any company on earth wouldn't do that, I can't even imagine why you would mess with the Teamsters, but he would be the kind of nice, because my dad was a really nice guy. He would show up and, and he would be the nice guy because the next guy who shows up wouldn't be my father. And that was a lot of pressure. My dad, my dad said, I'm kind of too old for this. So we did it for a while, but still Teamsters did right by him. So there's my Teamster story. But the Teamsters got on board as soon as the Anti-Defamation League said things were okay. But uh, there were a couple of gangster backstories. So there was the Frank Sinatra backstory. So Johnny Fontaine's obviously Frank Sinatra in the novel. And they try to get Sinatra to play it. And Sinatra said no. And then Hollywood stories, you know, they're as true as, I don't know. What is it? John Gregory Dunn, the novelist, screenwriter, remarked once that Hollywood history is never believable because it's stories told by professional storytellers. So that's Hollywood history. So I don't know how true this is, but this is the story that circulates that that Sinatra not only turned down the role of Johnny Fontaine, he said that he sort of threatened all Italian-American singers that if they were to play this role, their career in Vegas would be over. And Vic Damone had, had signed up to do it and was actually in rehearsals and, and stuff. And he, he got cold feet and walked away. And now that story was covered by Variety. And I talk about it in the book because there's sort of a paper trail on it. And Damone had, I forget what reason he said, but it was, it was not that Frank Sinatra threatened me, but that's kind of how it felt. And then Al Martino eventually did it. And my view is that kind of nobody ever heard of Al Martino. So he figured, what the hell? I might as well do this role. So there's that. And Sinatra threw a drink in. Puzo's face, but then again, he threw drinks in a lot of people's faces, and that's not a very big deal, I don't think. So there's that story. The best story is the one that I sort of uncovered right when it was finished finishing the book, and it's told by Peter Bard, variety editor who was the vice president of production at Paramount when Godfather was made, and that is about this guy named Michelle Sindona, Michelle the Shark Sindona, and he was a money launderer. And he worked for Franklin Bank in Hempstead, Long Island, so uh, near where I grew up. And it's too long a story to tell, but basically, Paramount's in trouble in 1971 when they're developing Love Story and then Godfather, the two films that pulled them out of, out of real financial trouble. Gulf and Western owns Paramount, and they thought it was a good buy because it's kind of, you know, they're a mining company, so having a Hollywood company probably sounded kind of glamorous. And they were losing money at Paramount, and they kind of didn't know what to do. And at one point, Bluthorn put the Paramount lot on Melrose in Los Angeles up for sale. And the sale went through, and these developers were going to build, I don't know, a high-rise or something. But there was an adjacent lot, which was a, a cemetery, and they couldn't get zoning to either raise the cemetery, which I can't even imagine how you could do that, or to build next to it. And so the deal actually would have gone through except for a zoning problem. So the zoning problem happens, and then I think Bluthorn tries to scuttle the company. So he hires three people who have no business running his studio, Evans, Frank Yablons, and I'm going to forget the thing. <laughs> I've already forgotten that the third guy who vanishes fairly quickly because Yablons and Evans end up being paramount. And they developed Love Story 
and Godfather, but they don't have, Gulf and Western doesn't want to put any of their own money into the movie because movies are losing money. And Godfather, even though the book is, is a sensation, as was Love Story, they still don't want to do it, or maybe they don't even have it. And along comes this Michelle Sindona, and he says, well, look, we're trying to get involved in this company called Immobiliare, and we can't buy into it. Societa Immobiliare, we can't buy into it because we're um, with the mafia. But how about you buy into it for us? And whatever you put in, we'll put into Paramount. And Bluthorn says, sure. Uh, that sounds good. And if you've seen Godfather 3, this drama played a little sideways is the story that Coppola tells. It's not a, I haven't invented the story. And so the money goes to Paramount. And then, of course, Paramount makes Godfather. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out that some of this money, this mafia money, Paramount did them a favor and became the face of the money going into Mobayari for them. All this mafia money flooded into Paramount, and that mafia money went into making the greatest mafia movie of all time, Godfather. Nudge, so Donna ended up uh, <laughs> in lots of trouble in the whole savings and loan scandal before your time, but, but it was a big deal. And then he ended up in jail in Sicily and ended up dying in, as they called them, mysterious circumstances. I think poisoned. He somehow got poisoned by the prison food, <laughs> which... It's really interesting how um, <laughs> the story of The Godfather and, like, Hollywood and Mafia was just, like, so interlinked. Like, so I was reading further into this just because it was just so interesting and entertaining to me. But Michelle Sandona also had, like, a link to, like, the Vatican Bank scandal as well, which is also something that comes into play in, like, Godfather 3. and. This whole thing also reminded me of a, a much more recent, like, um, not directly related at all, but confluence of Hollywood crime and capitalism, which is like um, the Malaysian political and financial scandal of, I can't remember what it's called as a name for it, but um, basically there was a lot of embezzlement from like a, a government fund, some of which ended up going to the making of the Wolf of Wall Street. But then also, <laughs> I just also recently found out that like, Leonardo DiCaprio was gifted Marlon Brando's Oscar for On the Waterfront by one of the people running this money laundering scheme in Malaysia. So there's a very, very indirect link, but it just made me think a lot about like this weird intertwining of like Hollywood and the mafia and the intertwining of, you know, as you say in your book, like art and commerce, legality, illegality, etc. Yeah, it made yeah, me think Hollywood's about that. Always, yeah, there's a naivete to thinking that all all money's the same, you know, it's green, as they say in the US, I guess money out your way is not all green, but money here is, you know, the color of money is green. And it's naive because Hollywood's had this very complicated relationship with the mob. The unions in Hollywood, certainly IATSE, I-A-T-S-E, IATSE, which is the big backstage union that was a mafia stronghold in the 40s and 50s, for sure. I don't know if it still is. And lots of the uh, Billy Wilkerson, who was the editor of The Hollywood Reporter and kind of a Hollywood player, owned three clubs in the Sunset Boulevard sort of area of Hollywood and West Hollywood and Beverly Hills. And a lot of, a lot of Hollywood players gambled there and intermingled with gangsters. And you have gangsters like Johnny Rosselli and Mickey Cohn and before him, Dragna, Jack Dragna all having at least social relations with gangsters. I write about this in a different book because I'm sort of fascinated by it. But there was a real naivete to think that these relationships 
we're like relationships with normal everyday people and they're not i mean these are really scary guys and a lot of bad things happen because of these relationships with real gangsters you know famously you know the lana turner johnny stampanato event that where stampanato ended up with a a knife in his back and turner's daughter cheryl crane basically took the rap for it though there's certainly plenty of speculation about that story but in a way, it was just sort of a naivete about who she was dealing with. I mean, Stampanato was a was a killer. He was not a Hollywood actor playing a gangster. He was a he was a proper gangster. Mickey Cohn had a black book. Oh, this is a, this is a story that has nothing to do with anything except this cool story because it's about a dentist, which I think is great. So when Cohn was uh, indicted for tax evasion, which is generally how they get gangsters. His black book was introduced into evidence and it had the names of all of these in his black book, his address book, were all these, all these obvious Hollywood types like Sinatra was in it, of course. But it was like Jerry Lewis, Red Skelton, you know, just all these people maybe you would think wouldn't. And there was this some dentist in Detroit whose daughter wanted to be a singer and she got to audition for like this ridiculous group of Hollywood luminaries. At Red Skelton, Red Skelton was a popular comedian at the time, at his house in Los Angeles. And it's sort of like, how on earth does a dentist's daughter, you know, who's probably terrible, get to audition for Hollywood? And the answer is because of Mickey Cohn. He had something on all these guys. There are all these loans that he supposedly gave to Hollywood players that then they would then pay back. And it was, you know, these are gambling debts, but if you gamble, you lose. And if you lose, you end up owing money. And in this case, these are very wealthy people gambling money in astronomical amounts and end up owing gangsters astronomical amounts. And some of it gets paid back in money and some in favors. And, you know, there's a, there's a dark history of Hollywood that involves this. This isn't necessarily having anything to do with Godfather, but it does have to do with the complex relationship between the mob and Hollywood. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's very relevant because I think the mob in so many different ways has made it kind of interwoven its history with other histories and and kind of made them a lot more complicated than people think they are. Like I learned recently this whole history of how our whole conception of like the gay bar is totally directly like the mob was directly responsible for that because it was effectively like. They had all these prohibition bars in the 20s during actual prohibition. But when there were all these homosexuality mm-hmm. bans a couple decades later, it was like prohibition, but for for queers. And the mob totally hopped on that and like created all these gay bars in New York. Oh, wow. So our whole conception of the gay bar as we know it is directly related to mob history. So it's not surprising to me that like these movies that we all, that our household names and that we've all consumed for a long time kind of are intermingled in that history. It's just very interesting to me. But zooming out a little bit to think about the film and its place in our kind of cultural consciousness, how do you think that this movie got its reputation as quote-unquote high art or just like a canonical, just like a classic film in the Western canon? I mean, obviously some of it has to do with almost every major male actor in the movie getting an Oscar nomination the year that it was nominated, but it could also be uh, Coppola's visual style and what makes it fundamentally different from, you know, movies that we're dealing with now in like the Marvel universe. Do you think it's the themes? Like, 
what is it about this movie that makes it high art? Because I think there are other kind of movies that have this stronghold in our culture in the same way, but don't have the same kind of place in the canon. Like where Ming and I are going to talk to the author of the BFI's Empire Strikes Back. And obviously Star Wars is a great example of that, of this movie that like is really important, but isn't like canonical in the same way that The Godfather is. So like, what is it about this movie for you that makes it considered one of the best movies of all time? I think there are films in even world cinema history that arrive at a certain moment and change everything. I think you can say that People say it about Citizen Kane all the time. You can say it about Breathless, Godard's Breathless. There's probably other film scholars might, might say or use. But I think Godfather is one of those. And I think it arrives at a certain moment when movies are just getting good again. Paramount's getting out of the movie business because movies are terrible. I mean, and they're losing money, but they're also bad. And American films, especially, and the American film audience, you know, young people are there's this great book called Rock and Roll is Here to Pay. And it's basically commemorating the moment when the music industry supplants the film industry as the most popular and the most lucrative pop culture industry in America. And I think Godfather comes at a moment when maybe movies are, you know, there's a reasonable assumption that maybe, maybe movies are in trouble. And so I think it comes with a whole new, like Breathless did, it comes with a whole new language of cinema. And I think that that's underrated. You know, people look at Godfather and it's just flat out, you know, it's a terrific movie. You know, it's an engaging movie. It's beautiful. It's got memorable characters. It's like Casablanca. You know, it's got lines that people repeat. You know what sleeping with the fishes means. I mean, really, how useful is that to you? But you know what it means. You know, it's, there are all these lines in the film, nothing personal, it's just business, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I think it's got that. It's got this sort of, uh, it hit at a moment when cinema was sort of going nowhere. I'd say the same about Breathless. And then suddenly there's this whole new language of cinema. I think it also corresponds to this sort of moment where Hollywood has to rethink its business plan. That the way they used to make movies isn't working anymore. And even the executives at the studios are starting to see the truth in this. So they decide that maybe the answer to our problem are, university film school educated directors, which would have been unthinkable even five years earlier. And this is the first film. You know, there are a couple of movies that come before Godfather that that are starting to show a change. The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Easy Rider, starting to show, okay, American cinema can be something else. But this film comes along and it's a whole new formula. And it's, he's saying, you know, yeah, we're going to make gangster film. I'm going to make a gangster film. It's not going to be like anybody's gangster film. It's not going to be like a gangster film from the 30s. There'll be pieces of that. You know, the visual style of Scarface is echoed in Godfather, but like all great auteur films, it's got a signature. And here's a movie that had a kind of indelible signature of, of its director. And I think that more than anything is the case. I don't know enough about the Marvel Universe to know if you can recognize one director from another. I, I'm not the audience for that, those movies. And what Martin Scorsese got in a little hot water by saying they're not even movies, which I can sympathize with. Yeah, I um, agree with him. I think he said it was like a kind of like a, an amusement park almost, which I think is a much more accurate way to describe yeah. what they are. Yeah, and I think, God, you know, Godfather, there's something very intellectual about what Godfather's doing. and. There's 
a consistency of style that is an artistic signature. The faces that are half lit and half dark, the chiaroscuro, sort of what they call Rembrandt lighting through the film is so intense. The cinematographer got the nickname the Prince of Darkness, Gordon Willis. That was his nickname in the business, and it was, it was a sign of affection that he could make a movie work with such low light. Yeah, so I think it deserves its place for that, but also coming at a moment where it was the movie that turned everything around. I mean, you talk to anybody of that generation, Lucas, Scorsese, et cetera, and say, you know, who made this happen? They'll all say Coppola. When Lucas won his Thalberg Award, which is the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Motion Picture Academy, he thanked his teachers, which I thought was awesome. You know, he thanked his teachers and teachers everywhere. And then he said, and Francis, and didn't even have to say the last name because everybody knew who he was talking about. My mentor, Francis. And so that, if nothing else, sort of tells you that even in the industry, it's regarded as a canonical moment. Sight and Sound, which I know has some relation with BFI, right? I mean, aren't they a BFI publication? They're doing their, every decade, they do a best movies of all time survey of, of critics naming their best movies of all time. And Godfather's always in the, in the top five or ten. And that's coming out this year, so we'll see if Godfather Godfather's number one. It's certainly part of the canon, that's for sure. Could you expand a little bit? And you've talked about it already a little bit, but yet, as you said, like at the time, like cinema, uh, America cinema was considered to maybe not be in its best period. But Coppola wasn't on his own. He was part of like what, you know, film historians now call New Hollywood, where like the power of like the individual director rather than like studios was starting to like come to the fore a little bit more. Can you talk a little bit about perhaps Coppola and the Godfather trilogy, perhaps, or the Godfather duology, like their particular places within that about New Hollywood and what, like, how those were affected by by this? Yeah, I mean, I think this is another reason why it's a canonical film. I mean, it, there was Hollywood before Godfather and then there's Hollywood after Godfather. Paramount, it saves Paramount and I'd argue probably saves Hollywood. And they cling to this, they being the studios, cling to this formula for a while. From 72 to right around 1980, usually Heaven's Gate is the moment that marks the, the move away from O-Tourism in Hollywood. So it's, it's hugely significant. And John Milius, who has a very sort of complicated relationship with Coplay, he wrote Apocalypse Now, among other things, Conan the Barbarian. He basically says, you know, Francis was, he calls him the white knight that saved Hollywood for us. He wrote in and, and changed the rules. And on his heels come Scorsese, Lucas, Spielberg, Milius, De Palma. So yeah, it's huge, hugely important in, in the, certainly in the gestation of, of the new Hollywood. There's another new Hollywood that sort of takes shape in the 80s, and Coppola doesn't get to be part of that. And that's an interesting other story. Whereas Scorsese... Altman, et cetera, sort of have comebacks, at least in the 90s and the, and the 2000s. And Coppola, not so much. He's made a couple of interesting films between Apocalypse Now and, and today. He's apparently making a movie right now. You know, he didn't. And I think in some ways that shows how important he was. He was, he was big enough to be a worry to the studios and in some ways an object lesson in the early 80s that even Coppola wasn't bigger than, than the industry. He, he redefined. 
So I don't think he, I don't think you can underrate or underestimate his contribution. I think it's really sad. I, I put this in the introduction to the, the new edition of the Godfather book that it's sort of fashionable now to sort of diminish his accomplishments in comparison to directors who aren't even remotely in his league. And I think that's that's sort of sad because that's to miss the historical significance of nothing else of these movies. Because without Godfather, there's no new Hollywood. And without Coppola, there's no Scorsese, there's no Lucas, there's no Spielberg. None of these guys get a chance. Yeah, it's interesting to think about this history of how, I mean, you say that with this movie, like effectively saved Hollywood. It's really interesting to think about that now because it kind of feels like Hollywood and just movie making in general is very much in crisis. Like, you know, you already said that Scorsese got under hot water for saying that like Marvel essentially ruined movie making and just that you can't, you know, movies like this, like The Godfather that are kind of these not very small indie movies, but are not massive summer blockbusters that or like, I don't know, any kind of Quentin Tarantino movie like Pulp Fiction, these sort of, sort of indies, the idea of them getting amazing success right now is it's just interesting to think about what they would fare up against if they were being made now. And I'm like wondering, I know that you said you don't really engage with Marvel movies, but just given the sort of like Marvelization of movie making, what do you think the future of movies like making films like this is? Do you think that The Godfather could have been made today and had the success that it did? I'd sort of say probably not. I mean, it would probably show up um, as a Netflix Hulu series. You know, these companies have a lot of money to put into productions. And it seems like shows with actual human beings having relationships with other human beings you know, obviously that's not what Marvel's about. And that seems to be where these movies are. There's, I think, a consensus in Hollywood today that the studios have no idea how to make a kind of mid-range movie, a movie that isn't one of these sort of billion-dollar productions that are all about CGI and yeah, that are like amusement park rides. But they're, they're made that way. I mean, it's not, I don't think that's necessarily a criticism. That's sort of what they are. But there are plenty of shows, you know, you you look at The Sopranos, for example. I mean, that, to me, that's probably what anybody trying to do a Godfather now or some version of it, you know, would only look to The Wire, Godfather, Big Little Lies, you know, all these sort of serialized things, often based on a novel that get adapted, but on the small screen and get done really well. You know, certainly the production values of some of these shows are are quite terrific. There was a story, this is maybe not the best example, but Adrian Lyne, you know, who did Flashdance and Indecent Proposal and is it Basic Instinct? Yeah. Isn't that the Glenn Close, Michael Douglas thing? Oh, that's Fatal Attraction. Oh, Fatal Attraction. Basic Instinct's the Madonna film, right? Oh, no, it's Sharon Stone. I'm actually a big fan of both of Okay, that's the Verhoeven. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm confusing all my softcore thrillers here. But anyway, so Adrian Lyne, who, who made these provocative films in the 80s and, and had a reputation, and he hasn't like vanished off the face of the earth, but it's sort of like those kind of little provocations. It's not high art, I don't think, but he's a really good movie maker. He makes that movie really well. Unfaithful was like the last movie he had made before this new one called Deep Water. And um, I actually kind of liked it. I watched it the other day. I read about it in the newspaper 
I actually read The Guardian in the morning, every morning. That's my, my act of un-Americanism that I read a British newspaper. That and I'm a big football soccer football fan, so they have really good coverage. But anyway, they had an article about his new movie, Deep Water. So I, it was on Hulu, so I watched it. And it was actually pretty good, but he couldn't get... This is Adrian Lyne, for Christ's sake. You know, he's had several hundred million dollar hits and he can't buy a thrill in modern Hollywood making the movie he's always made these provocative indecent proposal you know would you allow your wife to have sex with a millionaire you know for a million dollars that's the plot of that movie it's a ridiculous plot but people want to see it anyway so Deepwater is pretty good it's Ben Affleck and Anya Del Armas you know the woman who's playing Marilyn Monroe in the new the adaptation of the Joyce Carol Oates novel Blonde, who's wonderful in it. The two of them are great. Tracy Letts is in it, who's you know a great writer and a really interesting actor. So he's got like big stars in it, and it's on Hulu. It never got a proper release, and nobody's seen it. And sadly, reviewers didn't sort of get that, even if you don't love this movie, it's kind of nice to have movies about people. In this case, adults behaving badly. It's based on a Patricia Highsmith novel, so Strangers on a Train. And I watched it and I thought, maybe because I'm comparing it to the Marvel Universe, I'd much rather see Deep Water than Ultron or whatever the heck those movies are called. I have no interest in them. And the few I've seen are so terrible and so politically reprehensible that I can't even go there. And yet here's this movie and it's very entertaining and the critics kill it because it's not, and it's slow. Yeah, of course it's slow because something isn't exploding every five minutes. Yeah. Anyway, people's uh, no people's attention spans are really terrible. Social media, the internet has just just made all of our brains like super smooth, and you know, not being able well, to. Well, is long, you know, it's well, three hours long, and sure. Yeah, the thing that I thought about when I was watching it was like, oh, going into it, I was like, oh, it's three hours long. But then, whilst I was in it, I was just like, this is so well paced. Like the pace is just like on the on the one hand, like it feels. Slow, but then you get to the end and all of a sudden you're just like, it was perfectly paced. It's so um, funny that we all say, oh, it's three hours long. And then we proceed to watch like five hours worth of a Netflix series because it's itemized in this way. That's like exactly what happens. And I think that things just need to be like digestible for people these days. Well, I think that's, that's why I think something like Godfather would be a, a five-part series or a 10-part series because people would maybe buy that. I Yeah, seeing law, I mean... The movie, Coppola signed a contract that he wasn't going to make it over two and a half hours. And if he did, he would lose control and the studio could do the final cut. So he cut the entire Sicilian bit out. So the Michael in Sicily cut it completely out and handed that in as, as his rough cut. And uh, Evans, Robert Evans, who was production executive at Paramount, said, where's the Sicily episode? Implied also, where's the Sicily episode? We paid so much money for you to go over there and shoot. And Coppola said, well, you said it had to be under two and a half hours. So he cut this huge chunk out of the movie rather than little pieces to meet the thing. And, and so Evans put it back in and he got his three hour movie. So you could have had a two and a half hour movie, but it wouldn't have had Sicily, which would have been a drag. So that, that stuff's great. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's still so many amazing stories being made, being written. Like, as you were saying, I think that we've just taken the big screen experience and sort of itemized it on siloed 
kind of streaming platforms and people are still consuming like really, I mean, we're in the golden age of television. Maybe it's just like outsourced itself to television of just like this incredible story making. But as for this big collective experience that every, you know, this idea of everybody in America watching the same movie and enjoying it, if it's not a Marvel movie to the sun, it kind of same like artistic stature of Godfather like that for me has a big question mark on it. I mean, I'm hopeful. People said that books were dead and now they're having a huge resurgence, like print books. People said records were dead and they're having a huge resurgence. I think we will enter another state of nostalgia where people are like kind of craving these big movies, but maybe, maybe that's too optimistic. I don't know. Sophia Coppola, I'm putting out a bat signal to Sophia Coppola and to maybe Kirsten Dunst to play like a, a, like a young Connie, maybe some Elle Fanning or something out there. I think she'll save us at the end of the day. (laughs) Well, Kirsten Dunst could certainly do K. I mean, I think that's a great, well, she's also, uh, she's Sophia's muse. So I thought it would be, and she's, she would be great at K. Yeah. Kirsten Dunst, if you're listening to this, I've got a movie project for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good, good. Yeah. That would be nice if we get some sort of credit based on a podcast. (laughs) Well, I just, that's all we have time for, but I just wanted to thank you so much, John, for uh, your time and and talking about one of the greatest movies of all time. I've learned some pretty zany things about this movie that I never knew before. So thank you again. 